For more than half a century, a river of oil has flowed quietly beneath the forests and rivers of northern Minnesota. Over 100 million gallons of it every day. It flows underground, invisible, including underneath this small field next to a community college outside the small town of Grand Rapids, a field that's really special to one person in particular. Okay, my name's Harry Hutchins. I was a longtime ecology, forestry, wildlife management instructor at the campus. This piece of land was drained decades ago to try to make it suitable for farming. But Harry was an ecologist, and in the late 1980s, he wanted to restore it to its natural state, to a wetland, a marsh, to use as sort of a living laboratory for his students. I had worked with this group of people, of scientists, for over two years. And we got the okay from the Board of Regents of the University of Minnesota to finally, okay, you, we're getting the cows out of there. We're going to let you have your wetland, turn it back to what it used to be. Hutchins is retired now. He has dancing blue eyes <laughs> and a dog, a yellow lab. Say hello, Hayes. <laughs> back on March 3rd, 1991, Harry was cross-country skiing outside of town. And yes, there's still often snow in northern Minnesota in March. Oh, man, all of a sudden the air turned. I was getting this terrible smell. And uh, I got home, and a friend of mine, uh, he called me up and he said, Harry, you won't believe this, but your wetland is filled with oil. One of the pipelines that ran underneath the field had ruptured. He says he had just gotten final approval on the wetland plan three days earlier. So what happened here... And one of my students was living at the apartments here, and he came and found me, and we looked up and he said, that's where it was going off right there. So there was a split in the pipeline. And there was so much pressure in the line that the oil was spurting into the air. And it just covered these aspen trees because it went up 30, 40 feet. It was quite a geyser. I'm Dan Crocker, and this is Rivers of Oil. It's a podcast from Minnesota Public Radio exploring why pipelines have become such a growing target. For people worried about spills, but also for climate change activists and for Native Americans fighting to protect land and water, pipelines are increasingly ground zero in this huge clash between our reliance on oil and the risk that oil poses to our planet. In this episode, we're going to dig into that first concern, the fear of spills. Because, frankly, it's a concern I've heard a lot as I've covered a contentious oil pipeline proposal in Minnesota the past couple years. It comes up over and over again at public meetings. My concern with the Ambridge line is if there is any type of a break. I'm afraid that the pipe is going to leak. Leaks in the pipeline are inevitable with the accompanying disastrous consequences to our water, our wildlife, and the air. But this story isn't just about the risks of transporting huge amounts of oil through pipelines. It's also about the reward that oil provides. Because cheap, easy access to oil powers our society in ways we don't even think about. It's not just in our gas tanks. It's in the roads we drive on, our kids' plastic toys, our makeup even. So to tell this story, we're going to zero in on this one controversial pipeline proposal I've been covering in Minnesota. 
It's called Line 3. But don't let the boring-sounding name mislead you. Line 3 has the potential to be the next place where we see mass protests over pipelines break out. And it's the perfect place to examine the fear of spills from oil pipelines. Because that pipeline, the one that made the geyser of oil in Grand Rapids, that was Line 3. In Minnesota, it's known as the land of 10,000 lakes. And as people who are fighting Line 3 like to point out, oil and water, they don't mix. Okay, back to Harry Hutchins now, the retired ecology teacher in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, and his dog, Hayes. Hayes, could you sit for me? Thank you. He's standing next to the marsh he had spent years trying to restore. So this whole area here, which was about a 16-acre wetland, was just filled with black oil. And pretty soon, the news helicopters arrived. The rich black crude is a sharp contrast to the snow-covered fields of northern Minnesota. Hundreds of thousands of gallons blew from the ground, exploding from a pipeline carrying some 22 million gallons of oil through here every day. In all, 1.7 million gallons of conventional crude gushed from the broken pipeline. To this day, it's still the biggest inland oil spill in U.S. history. And as the oil rose in Harry's wetland, about 300,000 gallons overflowed into a drainage pipe, poured under a highway, and into a nearby river. Scott Hall took me to the spot. This is the Prairie River, just a little bit east of Grand Rapids and a little southeast of uh, the, where the spill originated. Back during the spill, Scott was news director at KAXE, a radio station in Grand Rapids. Well, there's a couple loons. How about that? It's pretty here. Oh, it's gorgeous. He walked down here to the river every day to monitor the cleanup. Now, what I remember from 91 is coming down here about this spot where the trucks could back up. And you, we had ice, this was all iced over. It's hard to believe now. A lot of ice, and the ice was covered with the oil. And then there'd be people on the ice squeezing oil on top of the ice, which was weird. You know, everything was weird. It was like, it was like some kind of gross landscape. Cleanup crews on top of the ice on a frozen river used squeegees to mop up the oil. And so they had hoses going down and, and just sucking as much oil as they could out into these tanker trucks. Sometimes there would be 15 trucks lined up especially those first week or so, uh, just getting ready to load up and keep hauling and hauling and hauling, hundreds and hundreds of truckloads. So it was a big operation, huh? Oh, it was a huge operation, yeah. The cleanup lasted for months, but the pipeline company, known as Lakehead at the time, got really lucky. And as I remember looking downstream further, and I thought, well, gosh, you know, at least on the surface, the oil hasn't gotten that far. And that was so such a relief. Because a couple miles downstream, the Prairie River flowed into the Mississippi. If the spill had happened in the spring or summer, the oil could have been carried for miles. The lake had really made a point of saying, boy, the ice has really stopped it. It's really dammed it up. Here come some uh, trumpeter swans over our heads. Oh, man, isn't that great? Holy cow. As I talk to Scott on the riverbank, he's constantly pointing out wildlife, swans and ducks and loons. And I have to admit, an idyllic little river teeming with birds is not the image you picture when you think about the largest inland oil spill in U.S. history. It's kind of an article of faith um, for me 
give the natural area a chance and they, they will come back. They said 90% of the oil was, was recovered and I think that's, that's amazing if, if you look at it that way. But what does that leave you? 170,000 gallons of oil that wasn't recovered. So the people of Grand Rapids, the pipeline company, they dodged a bullet. It could have been a lot worse. And the name of the pipeline company that operates Line 3? Enbridge. They're a Canadian company that used to be known as Lakehead Pipeline here in the U.S. Line 3 is part of the longest crude oil pipeline system in the world, over 17,000 miles of pipe across North America. This past winter, I took a helicopter ride over the pipeline. Check, check, check. Listen off the ground here in Bemidji. Enbridge built Line 3 in the 1960s to carry oil from Alberta to the U.S. It's one of six pipelines Enbridge owns that travel from Canada through Minnesota. They built the first one back in 1949. Altogether, they carry more than two and a half million barrels of oil from Canada every day to Chicago, to eastern Canada, and all the way to the Gulf Coast. That's about a quarter of all U.S. imports. And now, Enbridge wants to carry still more crude by building another river of oil, a new, bigger Line 3, capable of carrying the heavy, sticky bitumen from the tar sands region. It's that proposal to build a new Line 3 that's causing all the current controversy. The forest just stretches in all directions as far as you can see. But there's really not that. There's forests and lakes and your, the pipeline corridor. <laughs> not much else. I actually don't see any pipelines. They're buried underground in a wide grassy path through the forest where the trees have been cleared. What I do see are miles and miles of forest and lots and lots of water. Enbridge wants to build its new Line 3 along a different route across northern Minnesota, south of where we're flying. But that route also passes through an area with some of the cleanest lakes and rivers in the state. It would tunnel under the Mississippi just a few miles from where the river begins. And that's what terrifies a lot of people in northern Minnesota. Because if the Grand Rapids spill has largely faded from the public's memory, a more recent incident provided a potent reminder of the risks. There is no escaping the oil. You can smell it everywhere. You can even feel it in your throat. Take a look here into the Kalamazoo River. You can see the slick traveling down the waters. In the summer of 2010, a different oil pipeline ruptured near Marshall, Michigan. Thick sludge from the Canadian oil sands flowed from a creek into the Kalamazoo River. Someone said it looked like chocolate pudding going over a dam. It was an environmental disaster and a nightmare for people who lived nearby. These pipelines are a mile down the road from me. Never thought in a hundred years we'd have this. Never thought it. For 17 hours, oil poured out of a six-foot-long gash in the pipeline, a pipeline a lot of people had no idea was even there. The river, swollen by days of heavy rain, overran its banks. It deposited the oil and its stench right in people's front yards. I can't live in my house because that thing's got a terrible odor in that. By the time workers finally contained the spill two days later, the oil had made it 35 miles downstream. And unlike conventional oil, which floats, some of the heavy Canadian tar sands oil sank. That made the cleanup a lot harder. It took four years to completely finish it. 150 families lost their homes. And the owner of that pipeline in Marshall, Michigan? Enbridge. After the helicopter ride in Minnesota, I sat down with Barry Simonson. He's the Line 3 project director for Enbridge. 
And he says the Kalamazoo River spill was a wake-up call for the pipeline industry. That was one incident that the company is, um, you know, takes full responsibility for. All, res- all releases that happen, we take responsibility for. And yes, he calls these accidents releases. He doesn't use the word spill. That was obviously a very, very large release that occurred in a highly sensitive location in terms of um, water resources. And so I think that really was a game changer in the industry in terms of stepping up our game and the industry's game. Enbridge and other companies, they know that if they want to build more pipelines, they can't allow major spills like that to happen. Barry Simonson has worked in the oil and natural gas pipeline industry for nearly 20 years. He's from Minnesota. And like so many others, he likes to hunt and fish. So he readily admits that Enbridge has a big responsibility operating crude oil pipelines here. Along our, the preferred route we have for Line 3, there's water resources everywhere. I think we're, we're well aware of that, and we've, we've heard that loud and clear. And I think it's a testament to the, the, the credibility that Enbridge has that the existing waters that exist today where pipelines have existed since 1949 and then then built out consecutively over time, those waters are still, quote-unquote, pristine. All those lakes and rivers we saw from the helicopter, what pipeline opponents are trying to protect, he says the fact those lakes and rivers are still so clean is proof that pipelines can operate safely here. And he says if people are really concerned about protecting the environment and want to prevent spills, then they should support the Line 3 project because Enbridge wants to replace the old Line 3, the line that spilled in Grand Rapids and has leaked many other times over the years, with a new pipeline. The current Line 3 is cracked and corroding. A new pipeline would have thicker steel and newer technologies and wouldn't require nearly as much maintenance. Still, new pipelines also can leak, and they do. To try to get a better understanding of just what the risk is, I called up this guy. Yeah, I'm Carl Weimer, and I'm the executive director of the National Pipeline Safety Trust. The watchdog group formed 15 years ago after a gasoline pipeline leaked in Carl's hometown of Bellingham, Washington. It flowed into a creek that runs through town and then ignited, creating this huge fireball that killed three children. He says at the time, there weren't any other citizen groups focused on pipelines. It was just him against a huge industry. The judge, when she awarded us the $4 million at the uh, final hearing of that trial, compared our efforts to uh, Godzilla versus Bambi. So I actually carry a little plastic Bambi with me. In fact, he says he had it with him when he spoke recently at an American Petroleum Institute conference. For the past decade and a half, he's worked with the industry and with regulators to make pipelines safer. And he says they've made progress. At the time the Bellingham failure occurred, you could put a pipeline in the ground and it could sit there for 50 or 60 years and there was no rule that you ever had to inspect it. Now the government requires regular pipeline inspections. To some degree, that was kind of a gift from the aggrieved people of Bellingham to the rest of the nation. And the technology has improved in the past decade. Computerized devices that look like little rockets travel through the pipeline, carried along by the oil. Along the way, they inspect the inside of the pipe for corrosion or microscopic cracks or dents. Then the company analyzes all the data it collects to see if any sections of the pipe need repair. Carl Weimer says they've helped a lot, but they're not foolproof. Remember the Michigan spill in the Kalamazoo River? 
Enbridge had inspected that pipeline several times before it ruptured. It knew there were cracks and corrosion, but the inspections didn't catch the crack in a weakened, corroded section where the line split. But there have been other safety improvements as well. Enbridge, for example, holds hundreds of emergency response drills every year. It cross-trains employees so they can respond to spills faster. And there's just a lot more data of spills available. And when you look at that data, it shows that the number of spills has stayed pretty flat over the last 10 years or so. But the amount of oil that actually gets spilled into the environment has gone down. I think part of that is some of the new regulations and some of the just the bigger companies have stepped up and really improved their leak detection and, uh, you know, hit the red button that shuts things down quicker than they perhaps used to uh, to prevent the amount of spills if something happens. And Enbridge is one of those companies whose record has improved. Companies self-report leaks, but according to Enbridge data, it hasn't had any spills on new pipelines it's built in the last decade. But as critics point out, any new pipelines that Enbridge and other companies build will eventually become old. And almost inevitably, the data shows, they will leak. I think it's true that uh, pipelines are relatively safe compared to a lot of other things that we take for granted, like driving in our cars. But they could be safer. You know, they're somewhere in the order of 300 significant incidents a year on pipelines still. We think that could be reduced by, you know, 200 and 250 of those incidents. So there's a ways to go. And even though it's relatively safe and the chance of a pipeline blowing up in any particular place is is minimal, um, people that have lived through tragedies like we did here in Bellingham know that uh, we ought to do all we can to prevent those. Perspective is everything. From the industry's point of view, they like to point out that 99.999% of the oil they transport is transported safely. But that leaves the other 0.001%. And that's the fraction that people in Marshall, Michigan care about. Same with people in Bellingham, Washington, and a lot of people in northern Minnesota. For a couple years now, I've heard passionate testimony about the environmental destruction that could occur if there's a spill. But the data shows that the chances of that happening in a sensitive spot are really, really low. And I know there will be people who won't like me saying that. From the industry's perspective, it's a pretty simple analysis. Humans have created a huge global market for oil. Pipelines are the most efficient way to get it to them. And, most everyone agrees, the safest way, better than trains or trucks. But here's the flip side. That risk-reward equation? It looks a lot different if you're someone living on a pristine lake next to an oil pipeline. Sure, the chances of a spill right at that spot might be minuscule, but you're the one being asked to bear that risk. And for what reward? That more Canadian oil might make it to the Gulf for export? Maybe paying less at the gas pump? There is one other reward, though, that people in northern Minnesota bring up all the time. Hi. I'm Dan Crocker with NPR. Hi, I'm Joe. Hey, Joe. Good to meet you. Come on in. Thanks. Who's this little one? This would be my youngest, Alexis. Joe Abeda has three young kids. There's a swing set and a jumble of plastic toy furniture in the front yard. He works for a local union in Grand Rapids, a part of Minnesota that's seen a lot of ups and downs in the paper and mining industries. There's a lot of guys that live here that are out of work right now that would be put to work on that pipeline. So it's an opportunity for a lot of guys to stay home, do a little bit of work during the season. And Lexi, come here, baby. 
and not have to travel to the Dakotas or Virginias or Pennsylvania or anything like that for work. Joe bought this house about four years ago. It's just a couple blocks from the Prairie River and just across the highway from where this story first started, the site of the largest ever inland oil spill. Joe says they had the water tested before they moved in. We're on a well and our water samples are perfect. There was no concern of contamination or anything whatsoever with the water. And that was literally across the street. And that spill went all the way down here over the ice and through some of the soil. And I have no fear of my children drinking the well water. So for Joe and many others in northern Minnesota, the jobs are the reward that makes a pipeline worth the risk. But, and there are also a lot of people who aren't going to like me saying this, it doesn't create that many jobs. Yes, thousands of people would help build the pipeline, including many from Minnesota. But a new Line 3 would create few, if any, permanent jobs. I made one other stop before I left Grand Rapids to a small house in the woods on a big lake outside town. Hi, are you Vicki Anders? Yes, I am. Vicki, my name's Dan Crocker. I'm actually with Minnesota Public Radio. I knew she had spoken out against the Line 3 pipeline project at several public hearings. I couldn't find her phone number, but I did find her address. And so I showed up unannounced. An older Toyota Prius sat in the driveway. I figured when I saw your bumper stickers, I had the right place. <laughs> That's a giveaway. Reduce emissions, tax carbon. Uh-huh. And this war? She's a retired social worker. This lake cabin has been in her family for 80 years. When I ask her about pipelines, she says she's mainly concerned about climate change. That is my big issue. Also concerns about the water, though, because pipelines leak. They just do. And we've got wonderful, pristine water up here. Um, and I don't want to see it getting polluted with oil. So you're living on some beautiful pristine water. Yes, here, I am. You? Yes, I am. This is how the debate usually gets framed in northern Minnesota. Environmental protection on one side, job creation on the other, with nothing in between. But really, what's at stake in the debate over an oil pipeline here is a lot bigger than that. Because there's a simple reason why all these oil pipelines run under our feet and why Enbridge wants to build a new one here across Minnesota. It's because there's still enormous demand for that oil. But every time you stick that nozzle in your car, it has real consequences. Harry Hutchins thinks about those consequences. He's the retired ecology instructor, and he's standing next to the wetland he worked so hard to restore that has come back after the oil spill. It's full of water and vegetation and wildlife. So what are we hearing? What, am I, what birds, I should know, but what birds oh. am I hearing out here today? Well, you're hearing uh, red-winged blackbirds and mallards. Uh, I'll have to stop and listen myself. So do you, I guess I'm curious, since you, since you lived through <laughs> intimately the biggest inland spill in the States, do you think about the possibility of another one happening? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, my backyard is right on the pipeline, the same pipeline. So, you know, you look at where it goes, and where it goes is through so many wetland areas and so many important lands for Native Americans. I think it's something we all need to stop. And, you know, when you put that 
hose into your gas tank next time, think about where it came from and the distance it had to come and the amount of energy it took to produce it. Just down the road from Grand Rapids is Native American land that Harry mentioned. Water choked with lush stands of wild rice, a grain sacred to the Ojibwe, a place where opposition to pipelines has taken fierce root, a place where tribal members say they're willing to go to great lengths to stop them. You know, I will tell you, if they issue that permit, I'm preparing to stand on the land, and I will stand in the way of those bulldozers. A place we'll visit next time on Rivers of Oil. Rivers of Oil is a production of Minnesota Public Radio News. It's produced by me, Dan Crocker, and Julie Seipel. Bill Wareham is our editor. Veronica Rodriguez engineered this episode. And Cody Nelson is our associate producer. He also composed our theme music. Meg Martin is our managing editor of Projects and Podcasts. Thanks to our partners, CARE 11, for providing archival footage. We've been covering the story of pipelines in Minnesota for NPR News, and we'll continue doing that. If you'd like to follow the developments in the Line 3 story, find us at nprnews.org.